And please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Eight to ten-year-olds are dismissed to their class. If you're new here and you've got an eight to ten-year-old, they have a class where they go through a teaching time right up top, or they're welcome to stay here with you. So either way is fine with us. Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through chapter 4, verse This is the section where the church at Corinth is divided over their leaders. They're playing favorites. They are divided as a church because they are playing favorites. They have different hopes and expectations for their leaders. They want their leaders to be more than the Scripture calls them to be, and that's created a problem. So let's read 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 4, 7. writes this to the church. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craft. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the ways that they are. No one boasts in men, because all things are Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you receive, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Title of this morning's message is Church Health Involves Knowing People Rightly. Church health involves knowing people rightly. I got permission from someone very close to me to share this story about them, okay? Permission has been granted. Someone very close to me told me last night in our home, she, uh, (laughs) I didn't mean to give it away. (laughs) She was in college and, uh, she had a professor she wasn't too keen on, and she was assigned to be in a group with other people, and uh, she was expressing her um, lack of appreciation, let's just say, for the professor to this group, and uh, one of the members of the group spoke up and said, I know my dad can be so hard sometimes. <laughs> uh, the girl was the professor's daughter, and It would have been helpful probably uh, for everybody to kind of say who they were and who they were related to before they started the group project. And sometimes that's what we need as a church. We need reminders 
about not just who we are, but who church leaders are, what they're supposed to do, what they're not supposed to do. If we understand one another rightly and even other church leaders rightly, I think that that will bring us to greater spiritual health or like Paul wants for the Corinthians, a greater spiritual maturity. And so in this passage, he, he tells the church who they are. And he also tells the church how he and Apollos and other leaders should be considered. So look down at verse 16 of chapter 3, and I'm just going to read the first verse to kind of help you see how he's trying to show the church who they are. Do you not know that you are God's temple? So my point there is he starts off this section by saying, this is who you are. Now go down to chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us. So do you see how this passage is really about two things, how you view yourself, church, but also how you view your leaders, here namely the Apostle Paul and Paulos, but then all the other leaders that have been given to the church. So how do you view yourself, church, and how do you view others? Viewing those entities rightly will bring about greater maturity, and I think this is a passage that churches need to understand today. This word is still relevant today. So for our purposes, we'll divide this passage up into those two points, how to view two specific groups of people, and those groups are the church and the apostles, or we could even put in their church leaders. So how to view two specific groups of people. The first group is the first point, the church is God's temple. The church, you all, who have repented of your sin, trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness, and then for the fact that He gives you His righteousness and that He rose from the dead, giving you eternal life. Trusting in Jesus Christ makes you God's home, God's temple. And I'll give you the application ahead of time, even right now. You could make the first point this, the church is God's temple, therefore don't be bullied. The church is God's temple, therefore don't be bullied. You'll see that flesh itself out in the rest of chapter 3. So people were troubling the Corinthian church, and they were engaged in destroying it. How were they destroying it? They were trying to get the Corinthians to take sides as to which leader they preferred, and, and they were preferring leaders because of their extra-biblical resume. So we want you to like Apollos with us. We're of Team Apollos. We should all be of Team Apollos. Look at how eloquent he is. But eloquence was never something that God demanded for leaders. He demanded them to be faithful to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, the new teaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So people were troubling the Corinthian church, and they were destroying it because of these personality cults. So God reminds the church who they are. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit, He Himself, dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, you all. God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, now, it's important to remember the history of God's temple, God's dwelling place. God created a world, created a Garden of Eden in the midst of that world, and He created people to live with Him. Adam and Eve were home in Eden, and they were home with God. Then they sinned, and what happened? There was a separation. Adam and Eve were sent out of the presence of God, if you will, sent out of Eden, the dwelling place of God, the home of God. And God has always been placing His presence in a, in a physical 
location. He's trying to demonstrate he's here. And so when you approach him, you've got to approach him, not flippantly, but, but with your sins taken care of. So he has the tabernacle for his people where he dwells. And you can't just saunter up to the tabernacle, do whatever you want. You, there, there needs to be death required for sin. There, there's punishment for your sins. There has to be that punishment that, was, that, was, that takes place for you to enter into the presence of God. And so that's what so much of the tabernacle prescriptions at the end of Exodus and Leviticus are showing. You can't just walk into God's presence, but listen, God does make His home with His people, so you can be in God's presence. And then later on when the people, His people get to Jerusalem, they do away with the tabernacle, the temporary tent dwelling of God, and God shows that His home is now in the temple, and this wonderful temple is built under King Solomon, and God's home is there in that temple. So, He meets with His people in that temple, but that temple is also where He reigns the entire, from, uh, reigns the entire earth from. So, the earth can actually come to this temple too. Gentiles can come to this temple. So, this is a home for everyone. But again, you can't do that flippantly. You can't… you have to take God seriously, trust in Him, And he says then in the New Testament that his own people are now his home. So when Jesus comes and talks to the woman at the well, she says, where do we worship? You Jews say this, us Sumerians say this, and he says that you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. There's no longer a physical location from where you worship God. Actually, the home of God is inside of his people. And Peter preaches that great sermon on the day of Pentecost where he calls people to repent of their sins and trust in him, and they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, inside of them. So, the people of God currently today, you, people of God, are God's temple, God's home. Now, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. The Corinthians were God's home. So, evidently, God's Spirit dwells in people who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, trust in people who have been gifted the Holy Spirit. They didn't earn the Holy Spirit. They were gifted the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells in people who still need to be taught, who are immature, who are operating so often in the flesh, who deal with another one another based on how the world deals with one another. God's Spirit dwells in people who are failing to love one another. God's Spirit dwells with people who are troubled and need to be reminded of their future resurrection. And God's people is dwelling with this Corinthian church who some of them are not doing anything about sexual immorality in the church. God still has made His home in that church. I asked you last week, would you go to the church at Corinth? Ugh, I'd be out of there so fast. God's not out of that church yet. God was still there, and He wanted them to know, even despite their sin and immaturity, He was still there with them. They were His home. Now, God, as we prayed earlier, matures His people, teaches His people, guides His people into greater maturity, Christ-likeness, but God doesn't love you because you're awesome right now. God loves you because He determined to love you, and He's at home with you. He doesn't love some future version of you. He loves you right now. 
And I think Christians need to hear that regularly. Churches need to hear that. God's Spirit dwells with this church. Evidently, this Corinthian church was precious to God. We, even 2,000 years later, make fun of this church. He loved this church, dwelled with this church. Now, this does not mean that every local church continues on forever. We know from Revelation 2 and 3 that He can remove His lampstand from them, remove their light, remove their existence, if you will. So, it's not that a church that starts proclaiming a different gospel is guaranteed a future, but as a church proclaims the right gospel, they are His home. Immature, weak, struggling with sin, sure. What other kind of people are there? That's who He dwells in. And then He says this in verse 17, you're God's temple, verse 16. If anyone destroys God's temple, so people are trying to destroy the people of God. It's not just in Corinth. They do it today. They do it here in this church. They do it in other churches. They try to discredit, speak against, harm local churches. That's what they do. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That's not my word. That's what God says. You can look down and it says it right there. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. You can't mess around with God's people. You can't think that everything's okay if you criticize God's home. You can't think that everything's going to be okay for you in the future if you go after God's dwelling place. Let's say it this way. You can't think that you'll always just be okay with God if you continue to insult his bride. He doesn't allow that. And notice he says, for God's temple is holy, set apart. It's different. God's temple is different to him than the rest of the world. God's people are different to him than the rest of the world. They are precious, precious to him. Holy, meaning unique, separate, set apart. They are different. He views them differently. He's committed himself to them. They are his. He married them. Christ is married to them. He's engaged to them, if you will. That's his bride. God's temple is holy, and you, it doesn't say you Corinthians will be that temple one day when you are perfect. You are that temple. God is more committed to us than we are to Him, and He holds on to us. We're His temple, we're His people, we're His Son's bride. That's us. No one can tamper with that and get away with it. Verse 18 Here's evidently the one who's tampering with that temple. Here's the bully. Here's the destroyer. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he might become wise. This is giving us an insight as to who the destroyers of the Corinthian church are or those who threaten to destroy the Corinthian church. They're people who are self-deceived, thinking they're right, telling the church that they need something beyond what Paul's giving them. You see that in its context? Those of you who have been going through 1 Corinthians from the start, what's the problem here? Uh, Paul's preaching, but he's not eloquent like Apollos. He doesn't have the wisdom of the orators of the day. So they look down upon Paul as if the church needs something other than Paul. And Paul's saying, God uses weak people. That's what he does. And in fact, God's message of salvation is a weak message. You don't climb by human wisdom to heaven, you fall on your knees and say, I need a crucified Savior for me. 
That's a foolish message to the world, but that's the message that God's people have. That's the message Paul had. And so these people in Corinth are saying, no, no, we need something other than Paul. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. You are deceived. You think that you're wise, but you need to become a fool again. Stop with the worldly wisdom and trying to impose that on the church. You need to go back to basics and become a fool and trust in the way that Christ saves His church and runs His church. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. So God sees these bullies in the church telling the church, you need something other than Paul. You need something other than leaders just faithfully proclaiming the gospel. We need something else. And he says, that's foolish with God. And then he cites two Old Testament passages, and these are so interesting in terms of where they come from in the Old Testament. He says this, he catches the wise in their craftiness. So these bullies threatening to destroy the church and telling the church, you need something other than Paul, need something other than Apollos. They are wise in their mind and they're crafty, and it says that they'll be caught in that craftiness by God. You know where that comes from? Job chapter 5. You know who says it? Eliphaz, one of Job's counselors that God, later on in chapter 42, is actually angry with. So one of Job's counselors says to Job, Job, he catches the wise in their craftiness. What Eliphaz means is, Job, you think you're wise, but evidently you've got some sin. You think you're crafty, but God will catch you. And what's Paul showing here that Job, at the end of Job, also shows us? No, God's actually looking at Eliphaz and saying, you think you're wise. You're harming one of my people, Job. You think you're wise. He's angry with Eliphaz. And the irony here is that he catches the wise, he catches Eliphaz in his own craftiness. You can't get away with hurting God's people. And then Psalm 94. And again, Paul says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Psalm 94 is a psalm that talks about God's commitment to His people. Here are a couple of verses from it. The Lord will not forsake His people. The Lord will not forsake His heritage. So the Lord is committed to His people, and from that passage, Paul says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, they are futile. So the people who attempt to wisely fool or trick God's people, they won't survive. That's futile wisdom. God's committed to His people. It won't work. Verse 21, back to chapter 3, 1 Corinthians. So, let no one boast in men. So, stop playing favorites in the church. God has given Apollos to serve the church. He's given Paul to serve the church. Evidently, some people in the church were somehow helped by Peter. So don't any of you in the church, Corinthians, boast in men. Don't pick your favorites. The Christian Standard Bible translates it this way. So let no one boast in human leaders. For all things are yours. This is so good. For all things are yours. They, they were viewing it, and this is how it would work in first century Corinth. You were connected to which leader you followed, and so you were that leader's follower. So this leader, this, this human philosopher could point to these people and say, they are my follower, they are my follower. But here Paul says, it's not that you're my follower, you're on Paul's team, or you're, uh, you're Apollos' follower, 
or you're, har- you're part of, you know, making Apollos look good. No, no, no. All things are yours. We are yours. It's not that you're ours. It's not that the church belongs to its leaders. The leaders belong to the church. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present age or the future, all are yours. God has, he's saying this, God has given you, church, different leaders. You're not ours as if we possess you. And that sounds a lot like how the first century Jews treated their people, the the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees of the day. They benefited off of the people. So, So the widow who gave her might that story is not a story about commending the widow. It's a story about how horrible that she would give her last bit of money in a system that preyed on her to line their own pockets. She was theirs, if you will. Ezekiel 34, rebuking the false shepherds of Israel. They devoured their sheep. The sheep exist for them. And people were operating that way in Corinth. We exist for Apollos. Let's champion Apollos. Let's like all his tweets and retweet them. Let's let everyone know about Apollos. Well, we're doing that for Paul. No, 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 no. Apollos and Paul are yours. God is using them to serve you. God has gifted you with them. The church is not the property of its leaders. The leaders are given to serve the church. And he says here, all are yours. All these leaders are yours, church. And this is helpful for them to see because some of them wanted to benefit from Apollos' teaching. Some of them wanted to benefit from Paul's teaching. They were kind of fighting there. And this is Paul's way of saying, both men have been given by God to serve you. Both have been. All seven elders at Canaan Bible Church of Prescott have been given by God to serve you. No room for favorites. God gifts His church with leaders. Your Bible study leaders are gifted to serve you, given by God to serve you. So you have favorites and you divide, but we can't do that. All are yours, Paul says. In fact, listen to this, the world is for Christians. Life is given to Christians. Even death, he says death the present or the future, all are yours. All of this, the world, the future, life, death, all of these work out for the believer's good in the end. All of them do. The difficult things happening to you right now, even as a believer, will ultimately work out for your good. So you could say those difficult things, as uncomfortable as they may be, are yours ultimately for your good. All are yours the world is yours, life is yours, death is yours, the present yours is yours, the future is yours. How is death going to work out for my good? Well, death is sad and difficult, but it brings us home. No more physical suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain. We're at home with God. Even death is, is ours for ultimately for our good. All are yours, and you are Christ's. You belong to Jesus Christ. You live for Christ, and Christ is God's. He's looking at the humanity of Christ and showing that Christ lived to God. So we then live to Christ. We seek to exalt Him, to obey Him, to love Him, to respond to Him. So Paul wants this church to know who they are. They're His temple. 
and he wants them to know who they are so that they would not be bullied by people trying to divide them. So some applications. Don't be bullied. Don't let people divide you from your brothers and sisters in the local church. Don't let it happen. You're God's temple. Well, some other brothers and sisters in the church are not fully mature yet. And what are you? Don't let them do that. What God's saying is, those immature brothers and sisters are God's home, and so are you. Don't be bullied. Don't listen to people who try to divide churches. Don't listen to people that try to divide this church. Please, please, please stop listening to them. The Bible says, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? The criticism that tries to divide brothers and sisters of Christ is worldly because Christ doesn't divide His, His, His children. Christ does not divide His children. So when people try to divide God's children, isn't it self-evident that that's wisdom from the world? For the Christian, just for the everyday Christian, I hope this is an encouragement to you. These Corinthians were called God's dwelling place. If you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you trust in that work, you trust in Him alone for eternal life, and you believe that you will have heaven based on faith in that message, not by your own goodness, not by your own works. If you believe in that message, you will be saved, and you are currently God's dwelling place. Cancer, job loss, family difficulties, disputes between another brother and sister, all of those difficult things do not change the fact that you are God's home. God dwells in you. Another application. Don't try to divide people over their commitment to their leaders. Do not try to get people to play favorites in terms of spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders who faithfully proclaim the gospel and seek to be faithful to Christ are simply people to see as servants of God, people to be thankful for, and not to use as points of division. So there's no such thing as, I am of Andrew Gutierrez, I am of Brad Penner, I am of Dave Lutz, I am of John Filkey. We've got seven elders now. I can't always recite all of them, but you get the point. We don't play favorites. God has given all of them, all of us, to help the church. Whatever your church you're in, don't let people divide you over your commitment to their leaders. So a second group of people that need to be understood rightly, we see the first group, the church, it's God's temple, so don't be bullied. Secondly, second group, church leaders are God's servants. Understand this about church leaders. Specifically, Paul starts with him and Apollos, the apostles. Church leaders are God's servants. So here's the application ahead of time. Don't take God's place in judging them. They're God's servants. You don't need to be the one that steps in and says whether they're good or bad, right or wrong. God will take care of that. And again, he's not talking about false teachers, right? There, there's a place to judge false teachers, to say that we're calling that out. That's wrong. So there's a place to do that. But Paul and Apollos aren't those. They're, they're faithful to the gospel message. So among those faithful to the gospel message, you don't need to judge which one's better. God will determine who's faithful in the end. 
and he'll reward them according to their faithfulness. God will take care of that. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand their leaders rightly so that they would not measure them according to worldly standards. Chapter 4, verse 1, this is how one should regard us, Paul and Apollos, and I believe, again, by extension, this applies to all church leaders. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. There it is. That's what you should think about us. Servants sent by Christ, commissioned by Christ, servants there to serve Christ by stewarding the teaching of God, what God has said. First and foremost, His message of salvation. But this is what pastors, teachers are to be. This is what the apostles were, stewards of God's truth, called to be faithful in their character. No one's perfect, but the pattern of life is to be faithful in character and to teach rightly what God says. That's it. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. So what do we want in a spiritual leader? You may want lots of things, many things. Here's what God calls them to be, faithful. Faithful to the message, faithful in representing that message rightly by their character. Moreover, it's required of stewards, they be found faithful. Now, that is not earth-shattering news today, right? Yeah. Amen. I agree with that. Uh, A church leader is supposed to speak rightly the Word of God and model that in their conduct. That's supposed to be their pattern of life. Amen. Sounds good until you see what church leaders are often called to be by the world or worldly thinking. So they couldn't question whether Paul was faithful to the gospel message. He was. They couldn't question his conduct. He was faithful. But he wasn't eloquent. It's all well and good to have faithfulness toward the message and a way of life, but we want someone that's more eloquent than Paul. That's worldly wisdom seeping into the church. They wanted eloquence. They wanted their teacher to be impressive physically. Today, yes, teach the Bible faithfully, have the right character, but church should also be a place where I'm not bored. So now the demand on church leaders is there's a level of entertainment in the church. That's worldly wisdom. Uh, We want you to be clever. The last guy was clever, funny, told lots of jokes. You just kind of teach and I I need some funny. I need some clever extra biblical. Be careful. We like that you teach the Bible, but we want you to be more politically active as a church leader. Worldly wisdom. And it's not said this way, but we also want you to be cool. Because if I bring my cousin in from out of town who's not a believer, and you, you know, there's like bad decor in the church or, you know, your, your tie's crooked or whatever it may be or the fact that you wear a tie. I mean, if, if we bring them to that, they're not going to really listen to the message. So, we, you need to be, yes, faithful to the text, but also kind of appealing. Extra biblical worldly wisdom. What your cousin needs is to hear the gospel faithfully proclaimed and to hear the truth of God's Word. 
That's what your cousin needs. So this is still something that the church can struggle with. And Paul says, here's how we want you to regard us. We're servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. There you go. And we're supposed to be faithful stewards, faithful servants, and faithful stewards of the mysteries. That, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. Nothing else. And Paul was being criticized <clears throat> by people in the church or people listening to critics in the church or outside of the church. And so he says in verse 3, both me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or in a human court. The opinion poll of what you think of me isn't what matters to me. In fact, <clears throat> I do not even judge myself. He says, I don't even judge myself. I love this about Paul. He's not saying, you know, your opinion of me doesn't matter. He's also saying mine doesn't either. Okay? Verse 4, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. I mean, my conscience isn't troubled. I don't think there's anything that I find against myself. But even there, but I'm not thereby acquitted because of that. Well, I haven't done anything wrong. I know I haven't done anything wrong. At the end of the day, that doesn't matter either. If God is the judge, He's the judge. So it's not that, it's just that the, 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 the human court or the church is not the judge, but you yourself, Paul, aren't the judge, and he knows that. It is the Lord who judges me. You know, sometimes when there's a Supreme Court vacancy, they do these polls on who people should think should be the next Supreme Court justice, and it's just kind of a, an interesting thing to see what people think, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because people don't pick the Supreme Court justice. The sitting president does. Confirmed by the Senate, if that happens, okay. But it's not by human opinion that someone gets to be Supreme Court justice. It's not by human opinion that someone is seen as a successful pastor or church leader or apostle back in that day. It's God's determination. Verse 5, therefore, here's application, don't pronounce judgment before the time. Paul says, I don't need your opinion. In fact, don't give it. It's not time for that, and you're not even the one to give it when it is time. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden? Listen, every time we evaluate a human leader, a church leader, we don't know the full story. That's why it says God will be the one that brings to light those things hidden in the darkness. We don't know what's going on in their heart. God does, and He'll bring it to light in His judgment before that person, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And as we saw last week, there are different levels of rewards that are going to be given. And each one will receive his, again, in different versions, this is translated praise from God. It's a shocking thought, isn't it? God will look at His servants, all of which did some good things, some bad things in ministry. He's the one that knows their hearts, knows all of it, and He will be the one to praise them in due time, to give them a reward in due time. So Paul's saying, you don't need to play that game, Corinthian believers. There's a judge, and God will come and determine what's good, what's wrong, and He'll give the commendation in His time, in His day. Verse 6, Paul says this, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit. I love how Paul seems to keep putting his arm around Apollos. They're trying to divide, oh, we like you better, Paul. Oh, we like Apollos better. And he keeps saying, we're we're both servants together. 
He said it in the last passage last week. He says it here. Here's how she regard us. We're servants of the steward, or we're servants of the mysteries of God, stewards of the mysteries of God. So he's saying we're together in this. I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written, and that none of you be puffed up in favor of one against another. So Paul's saying, Apollos and I are both servants. You can learn that we're both servants and stop dividing us and you guys stop dividing from one another. Apollos and I are in this together. We're all in this together. Don't go beyond what's written. Paul has, again, in these last few weeks as we've gone through the first few chapters, Paul has given five different Old Testament passages that warn the Corinthian church, don't don't use human wisdom to evaluate one another and to evaluate your leaders. Don't go beyond what God has written to you. Don't go beyond it. That's why he says, <clears throat> I've applied all these things to, Paul and Apollo, or to Apollos and myself for your benefit so that you may not go beyond what's written and that none of you be puffed up in favor of one against another. When we add to what pastors and church leaders should do, when we have different expectations other than what the Bible calls them to do, it tempts us toward dividing over those leaders, which one does this better, which one does that better. And Paul wants them to see, hey, Paul, Apollos, Peter, whoever it is, we're all servants. That's how you should view us. Verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? This is Paul saying, Apollos and I are servants why is there something different in you? Why are you elevating yourself when you're just a servant too? Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? So God's made us servants. He's given us grace. He's given us a message to proclaim. And we start puffing ourselves up. We act as if there's, yes, God's given us grace, but we've also kind of got some things together too. We should be credited as well. So Paul's saying, Paul and I are just servants. Why are you any different? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, if you did get it from God and His grace, why do you boast as if it originated with you? Why are you doing that? <clears throat> this is a call for Christian humility. This is a call to understand that anything we have is simply a gift from God. So we don't need to try to outperform one another. We don't need to fight for ministry positions. We don't need to fight to show who's better. We're all simply recipients of God's grace. We're all servants of God. So, by way of application, if you're a leader in the church, just to any regard, here's your goal. Not to be likable, not to be funny, but to be faithful. Be faithful to the word that you teach. Be faithful to represent that word with your character. Simply be faithful. Whether people appreciate that or not, speak ill of you or not, at the end of the day, your God will judge. And if you are faithful to Him and His message, you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Church, don't pronounce judgment before the time. That comes from the passage. Don't pronounce judgment in the place of God. Don't judge gospel-proclaiming leaders based on extra-biblical standards. Don't do that. 
as it was tearing the church apart at Corinth. So Paul believes that by this church in Corinth, understanding who they are, God's temple, and understanding who their leaders are, merely servants called to be faithful, if they really take those things to heart, it will bring about a greater maturity. The same is true today. Same is true today. Enough of the divisions, enough of letting bullies get in. Remember that you are God's temple. Remember that your leaders are merely servants called to be faithful, nothing else. I read a letter, or heard a letter read Um, It's a letter from a pastor to a congregation. I don't know if it originated with the pastor I was listening to or if he just um, used it from another pastor, but I thought it was helpful. It's a letter that the pastor wrote to his congregation to encourage them based on this passage. And I thought, you know what? That's a letter I'd want Canyon Bible Church of Prescott to hear. (laughs) So I give credit to where credit's due. This is not from me, but I'm I'm using it to be a letter from me to you today, okay? Dear beloved congregation of Canyon Bible Church of Prescott, insofar as we have benefited by and practiced gospel ministry modeled after the Apostle Paul, we could not be more precious to God. He Himself dwells among us, We are to Him very, very special. We are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Be aware, please, that worldly workers will arise even amongst our own number. We must not allow them to bully us or bring us down. We must not play their game. We must not boast in men. No matter how much we admire this gospel work or that part of the ministry, or this speaker, or that speaker, they are only human. This is how we are to judge. Are they faithful? Is their conduct pure? Please let us not tread into areas that God alone knows. It's beyond our pay grade. And please be warned of this one thing. If, God forbid, some have sought to destroy God's precious church for their own ends, God will destroy them. Let's pray. Father, this church is special to You, not because of who we are in and of ourselves, but because of who You are. You're a God who's forgiven us, shown us mercy, shown us grace in abundance. All of us who are continuing to grow and mature trying to rightly relate to one another as your children. All of us are your home today. You love us. You dwell with us. And so, Father, I pray that we would live according to that truth. I pray for those in this room that we would treat one another as your sons and daughters. We would not treat one another based on our sins, but we would treat one another according to what you've done in our lives, how you've forgiven us and made us your children. Father, let us stand up to bullies that try to divide us from one another. May you give us the courage and conviction to say, you cannot say that about my brother or sister. 
You cannot say that about God's child. May we understand who we are, who churches are. May we understand who leaders are. May we trust in your final judgment one day, your final evaluation and determination. In the meantime, may we receive those who proclaim your word faithfully as simply gifts to us, gifts from your hand to us, so that we may grow. Father, in whatever way our thinking needs to be corrected by this passage, would you do that? And again, if there are people weighed down by sin, their own immaturity, things that people are saying, may you remind them of who they are in you. You make your home with them. So may today be a day of encouragement as well. You love your people. You're beautifying us. You're sanctifying us. And we are currently precious to you. And we'll one day be with you physically forever. We thank you for all of that. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.